was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure. Maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Okay, so who's most likely to buy your company? could be a financial buyer like a private equity group. Maybe it's a strategic buyer. You probably heard of partners becoming acquirers. What about customers? My next guest was acquired by one of his customers. And here to tell you the entire story is Nathan Hirsch. Nathan Hirsch, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. So tell me about FreeUp. What do you guys do? So FreeUp is my last company. So kind of to give a little bit of a background, I was an Amazon seller. I had started an Amazon business in college and I had hired VAs and freelancers to help me grow my Amazon business. VAs being virtual assistants for folks who don't know. Yeah. Virtual assistants. And I really did that out of necessity. I mean, I tried hiring college kids. They were super unreliable. I tried hiring US employees and no one took me seriously as a 20-year-old entrepreneur. So I needed help for my business. A buddy of mine told me about virtual assistants and I found myself using the Upworks and the fibers of the world and figuring out a good hiring process, but it just took too long to post a job, get 50 applicants, interview them one by one and talking to other Amazon sellers, they had that same issue. So I came up with the idea of what if I offered my Rolodex of VAs, my Rolodex of freelancers to other Amazon sellers? And they would say, hey, I need a graphic designer. I need a PPC person, a customer service rep. And I would introduce them quickly. I would take a percentage of everything that the VA made. I'd protect the client if anything went wrong. And that was the beginning of FreeUp. We created a competitor to Upwork and, and Fiverr, uh, a marketplace that pre-vetted VAs and freelancers, uh, matched them up quickly, had great customer support, had no turnover protection, and eventually ran out of VAs and freelancers, had to start recruiting and marketing on that side, got a developer involved, built this minimum viable product of a software, and, and we really hit the ground running. And we started off going after Amazon sellers. We eventually went after marketing agencies. We scaled this business from a $5,000 investment to doing a million to 5 million to 9 million to 12 million in year four uh, before being acquired actually by one of our customers, uh, the Hoth, who's actually located about an hour and a half from me uh, before at the end of last year, November of 2019. So that's kind of the, the short version, but FreeUp came about based on my own hiring needs and then eventually uh, became this marketplace that ended up being a lot bigger than I thought it would. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I'm familiar with, with Upwork, a, a little bit with Fiverr, it, um, you know, the kind of marketplace of freelancers, I guess, is the way I think of it. And, and for those maybe who haven't used either of those two services, they could, they could visualize it that way. So what, makes, what made you guys unique from, say, Upwork? What was the point of differentiation? Yeah. So you go on, there's a lot of different freelance marketplaces out there, but they're very similar. You go on there, you post a job, anyone can apply. You then go through the applicants, you hire someone and you do the billing through the platform. And if someone quits on you, you kind of start that process all over again and turnover kills businesses, the wasted time that you spend interviewing all these applicants. A lot of entrepreneurs don't want to do it. And there's really no great customer service that, that we saw on these different platforms. So we really focused on four things. One, the pre-vetting. We got thousands of applicants every week to just try to offer services on the platform. We would vet them and only let the top 1% on the platform. 
from there, we'd match people up quickly. So people can go to free up. They can still go to free up and say, Hey, I need a graphic designer. And within a business day, you're going to be matched with one to three graphic designers. You're not going to have to go through 50 people. They're already being vetted. They're already going to be a good fit for your job posting. So you can do what I like to call fast hiring, where you can do quick interviews and get rolling. From there, you have customer service, where if anything goes wrong, if people miss, miss due dates, if people aren't communicating, you're not just there waiting and waiting for your freelancer to respond. You can reach out to the marketplace and, and they'll help. And then lastly, no turnover protection, because if you spend a month training a customer service rep in the Philippines and they quit on you, free up will cover the first month of a new person. So you never have to pay that onboarding cost more than once. So those four things are really what helped us stand out. Got it. And, and what, what kind of margin did you guys make on the freelancers time? I can't remember what Upwork is, but I think it's a pretty, like, is it 10 or 15 points of margin or something like that? They've raised their fees. So they end up being like 20% plus because it's 20% plus they have these different processing fees and all that. Um, free up was 15% with a, a $2 minimum per hour. And that $2 minimum is important because if you have a, someone for five bucks an hour, you're getting two out of that five, um, which is a lot higher than that 15%. Okay. So if I'm understanding, if I hire a freelancer on FreeUp uh, and I pay them a thousand dollars, you guys are getting um, $150, right? Am I getting that right? Correct. But if you hire okay. someone for five bucks an hour, FreeUp would get two, hour, two bucks every hour that VA works. Okay. That's helpful for sure. So, you know, one of the obvious questions is, with any marketplace kind of business where you have to have both the, the happy freelancers wanting to post their, you know, their availability and obviously the people wanting freelancers so that you need kind of both sides. One of the cruxes is the chicken or egg problem. How did you guys solve that? Getting enough traffic to both sides to support the marketplace. <laughs> right. You've got the, the client side and the freelancer side. So we had a little bit of a head start on the freelancer side because I mentioned I was an Amazon seller. I had this Rolodex of Amazon freelancers and we really tapped into that network early because what we did on both sides is we created a referral program where anyone that you recommend, you made money on every hour that they build forever. So we had freelancers right away saying, Hey, this platform's awesome because they brought me a good client and telling all their freelance friends and then vice versa on the client side. So we use that affiliate program and that referral program to really get it off the ground. And we went above and beyond to make sure every single person knew about it. Not only was it on the website, but on every single phone call, we'd have every single conversation. We would end it. We would train our people to end it saying, Hey, by the way, we have this great referral program. So right off the ground, we, we had the freelancers, we went out and found the clients, and then we used the affiliate program to keep it balanced until we were able to invest other marketing resources into the business. Got it. Okay. That's helpful for sure. And so you mentioned uh, the kind of growth of this and there's a we involved. Tell me about the team. Who is the, who is the we? Yeah, so it was me, my business partner, Connor. He's much more on the, the back end, the technical side, where I end up being a little bit more of the face and the, the sales side. Uh, we have a, a developer who we've known since our Amazon business uh, named Russell, uh, who built all of our software. He, he built our, our new software, Simply SOP as well. Um, and then all virtual assistants. We had no office, no US employees. Uh, hmm. Me, my business partner, my business partners and 35 remote virtual assistants in the Philippines. And we didn't have an office in the Philippines. We've only been to the Philippines once and that was for a vacation. It wasn't really uh, work related. And, and we didn't just wake up one day and hire 35 people. We started off with one VA, increased their hours, hired a second one. But by the time we sold it, it, it was, the team was about 35 people. Got it. And, and all remote VAs and it, other than you, Connor and Ryan. Yeah, uh, yeah, me, Russell, Connor, Sorry, and Russell. The, the team. Yep. Got it. That's helpful. So I'm curious about these virtual assistants because I've had, I think it's fair to say mixed, <laughs> uh, you know, um, results using um, mixed, like virtual assistants from different parts of the world. Um, what's the secret to hiring these people? What, like, what can you tell me? Give me some advice. 
Yeah. So, I mean, when we started hiring VAs, we had no idea what we were doing. We hired a really great one to start. We got lucky. Her name was Chicky Ann. She's still with FreeUp. She worked with us for, for eight years, but we made a lot of bad hires as well. And we really spent years trying to figure out that secret formula. What interview questions do we ask? How do we set expectations and onboard them? How do we train them very efficiently and create standard operating procedures? How do we manage them and keep them motivated mm -hmm. so they don't just fall off a cliff later? And so we spent years doing trial and error. And when we finally figured it out, the, the code of virtual assistants, that's when we were able to sell over $25 million on Amazon. We were able to hit the ground running with free up and hire rock stars from our, our internal team. Like the same people we hired in month one were with free up in year four when we sold it. And, and so, uh, and even now with outsource school, we, we teach other people how to do that. And, and our internal team is, is awesome as well. So it comes down to interviewing and, and focusing on not just experience, but attitude and communication as well. Onboarding, setting expectations, making sure everything is black and white. So there's no gray area or, or issues that, that pop up down the line. Having great operating procedures that allow you to save time on training. So you're not just doing one-on-one -on -one training with every single person and hoping that it works out. And finally, getting people to buy into the company and their management's a large part, a large thing I could talk about for an hour, but our biggest thing is RVAs care. They love FreeUp. They continue to love FreeUp. They love Outsource School. They want to be a part of it. They're not just over there doing tasks, handing in a task and getting another task. They feel like they're building the business with us. And that's really the key. Got it. What's your favorite interview question for a VA? So we like to ask them if they consider themselves a builder and if they like being, if they consider themselves entrepreneurial, because those are the kind of people we want to hire. We don't want to just hire robots who will do what we say and just say, yes, Nathan, I'll do it. We want people who are, are always thinking, how can I make this system better? How can I own this system? How can I take it to the next level? What outside experience can I, can I bring in there? Those are the kind of people that, that we like to surround ourselves with. Got it. So, you, so you, it's you and your partner, you've got these 35 VAs. Uh, you're billing, uh, you said 12 million or 10 or 12 million uh, of, of revenue on the top line. Is that right? Yeah. Last year it was 12 million. Got it. And, and again, you're sort of taking a percentage of that off the top. What, what triggered you to want to sell? Like what, how did that all kind of come about? So, I mean, logically, we, we know there's only so many ways you, you run a business. You either run it forever, you run into the ground, you, you get kind of funding, uh, venture capital, which we, we're personally not interested in. We don't want to feel like we're working or reporting to someone else or, or you sell it. So we tried to build free up and, and all our businesses to be sellable. But what ended up happening was one of our clients, the, the Hoth, reached out to us and, and they said, hey, we love free up. We've been using free up. We want to get into the VA freelancer space. We bought a bunch of other similar companies. Um, they, they own a, a, an SEO agency. They own a, a writing agency, uh, but they want to break into the space and they didn't want to build it from scratch. So would we be interested in being acquired? And from there, they ended up asking us questions, making us an offer that, that we felt like was uh, more than fair, if not aggressive. And then the, the due diligence began and, and they had a, a lot of questions on, on us and they wanted to know who does what, when in every situation and all of our numbers, all of our books and, and that kind of stuff. But we also did due diligence on them. We wanted to make sure that we weren't selling it to someone who was going to drive it in the ground or hurt our team or, or hurt our partnerships. And we went through that. They checked the boxes. We got to visit their office an hour and a half for me and meet their team. And, and we were really impressed with them just as entrepreneurs and as people. And then it became how do we make this a win for everyone? So we, and they were nice enough to agree to this, but we took $500,000 from the sale and gave it to our internal team in the Philippines to, to make sure they were taken care of. We made sure their jobs were secure, their bonus and raise programs were in place. And once we kind of sat down and we, we were like, hey, we're, we're going to sell our baby, this thing we've spent four years building. But we looked at it as a, a win for them, a win for us, a win for the internal team, a, a win across the board. And it was tough for us to turn something down that, that we felt like was a win for everyone and still feel like. Got it. So tell me about the Hoth. What, what are, I've never heard of them. So to describe them for folks who may not know that company. So Mark Hargrove and David Martin, who are great entrepreneurs, they own a bunch of different businesses. They bought the Hoth for $100,000 about, I don't even know, five to 10 years ago. And it's now doing over $25 million a year. Um, they, they built it up. They've been office in Tampa, Florida. I know, I don't think they're going to. But what do they now. do, Nathan? Like what, what do they SEO do? SEO services. So they sell SEO packages. Got it. So if I want my website to rank in a Google search above my competitors, I might hire them to, 
to improve my ranking. Right, exactly. Got it, got it. And so why did they want to hire or, or buy a, like a freelance marketplace? That seems like a weird, like, like what's, what, was the, what was the strategic sort of rationale for that? Yeah, and, and I'm not sure if I can speak too much for them, but the Hoth is their biggest company but they also own about like 10 to 15 other companies. They own iWriter, which is a company where you can get um, freelance writers and it's a little bit more structured um, as an agency more than free up. They own different marketing agencies and, and all these different things. So they, they did dabble a little bit in the VA freelancer space. So I think it was strategic there that not only are they acquiring a marketplace that can sell VA services, but now they have all these VAs and freelancers at their disposal, which they can use on their other businesses and, and bring it all together. Got it. So they're, they're seeing that they could, it could touch a few of their other businesses as well as the SEO one. And these VAs are obviously very important to whether it's writing or SEO services that they're relying a lot on. on yeah, we've seen it. The world. I mean, they, they've updated us on stuff, which they don't really have to do, but they've taken some people and like moved them to their other companies with the virtual assistance permission. And so just kind of using free up as kind of a centerpiece to get all this talent that they can then figure out how to use that talent uh, across their different businesses. Got it. Okay. So they came to you, uh, they were a customer. How did, I mean, describe that conversation that that, or how did they reach out to you uh, to, to enter into this conversation about acquisition? I mean, was it over email or LinkedIn or was it a out of the blue phone call? Like, how did that, how did that happen? So FreeUp operated a lot of its business via Skype. So I actually talked to Mark on Skype, chatted about it. Then we set up a phone call and brought my business partner in. So we, we had talked via the phone maybe a few times before that, but his initial outreach was via Skype. Was on Skype. How did he know how to reach you on Skype? I made myself very available on Skype. Uh, one thing, like in our intro emails, it was like, hey, at our, um, at our CEO, at our owner, uh, founder. And I actually had a team of VAs that monitored my Skype 24-7. So I wasn't just on there, um, but they always knew like when to escalate stuff to me. And when Mark reached out, I obviously didn't want my team to see it. So we quickly moved it over to the phone call. Yeah, got it. And, and what did, how did he approach you? Like, what did he say? What was his opening line? Um, man, good question. I'm trying to remember. I, something along the lines of, Hey, like we've really enjoyed free up. We, we really like it. Um, like we've acquired different businesses. We, we'd love to have a conversation with you and your partner if you're open to it. Something like that. Got it. And what was your reaction to that message? So we've had different people, even going back to the Amazon business, reach out. And I mean, anytime someone's like, hey, I want to invest, I want to buy your business, like we'll hear them out. We're always open to a conversation. So at that time, was I like, this is the guy, he's buying free up. They're like, definitely not. Um, but I, whenever someone wants to do that, we're, we're always open to, to listening to it. And um, from there, he brought his business partner in. We could tell that they were serious. That they had thought about it, that if they weren't going to buy free up, they were going to buy some other VA freelance marketplace. Like they were very determined to do that. Got it. And were there other, I mean, again, I know Fiverr and uh, Upwork. Were there other sort of small to mid-sized sort of VA services out there, virtual VA services out there that uh, they could have acquired? Yeah. I mean, there's no shortage. So when we started FreeUp, there wasn't too many VA marketplaces. Like there was Upwork, Fiverr, and there's a bunch of others, but um, there wasn't as many as there are now. Now, like they're popping up all the time. There's a, a marketing one that I can't remember. There's um, Outsourcely, which is a, a popular one. Onlinejobs.ph was there before us. So, I mean, it is a, a place that's gaining steam as the gig economy and now everyone's working remote. Uh, Jungle Market is another one that popped up after us. They targeted Amazon sellers. They kind of followed in our first step. So mm. no shortage of marketplaces. And was that a, a veiled threat on Mark's behalf to say, hey, Nathan, like, cool if you don't want to chat with me, but we're going to buy a VA service. So, like, was he using that as, in retrospect, do you think he used that line as a, as a way to sort of get your attention? Maybe. I mean, Mark and David are, are smart businessmen. Like, they couldn't have been better to us through the process. They, they, have, they couldn't be better after the process. Like, they've been updating us on, on decisions and changes, and there's nothing in our agreement that says they even have to do that or get our take mm -hmm. on that. At the same time, they're, they're smart businessmen. I'm sure they did from their side what they felt like would, would get them the best deal and get what they wanted done, just like Connor and I uh, did on our side. But I don't think there were, there were any threatening or, or anything along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm breaking down the math here. So we're, we're 12 million in billings. So call it 
a million six in revenue or gross revenue or whatever, whatever we want, gross profit, maybe we think of it that way. You got to pay the 30 VAs. It's you and Connor. So there's some profit left over. Like, what's the, what's the value of the company? Like, what are you thinking it might be worth? Before even Mark throws a number out, like, have you got a sense like it's probably worth like a multiple of revenue or a multiple of EBITDA? Like, how are you thinking about valuation? Yeah, yeah, good question. And I'll try to answer it without getting into too much of what I can't answer. I mean, we use sure. our accountant and uh, to, who we've worked with for years to, to kind of let us know what he thought in terms of evaluation. Um, you're, you're somewhere in the right ballpark for profit. There's also other factors as well. I mean, we had no debt. We had no, uh, the, the business was incredibly cash flow positive. Like we got, we charged the clients before we paid the freelancers. So we always Amazing. had a lot more cash than we did. Plus there, there was no like outstanding debts or anything like that. There was no accounts payable. Everything was either paid or a little bit of late payments for account receivable. Um, it was also lean. Like there's no employees, there's no benefits, there's no US office, there's no overhead whatsoever. And every single team can be scaled up or down. Like if we wanted to automate customer service more and reduce costs and focus on that, and someone could probably do it better than us, there's a lot of opportunity there. And, and our software, while we got it to a good point, a lot of opportunity there. We also did it very organically. There's a huge market for ads. Um, someone who can master that because it's a very difficult business to run ads too because it's free to sign up. There's no monthly fee. There's no commitment. People can start and stop. So it's a little tough to measure ROI, but not impossible. Someone with more business spirits than us can take it. So we kind of looked at it as, hey, this business is cash flow positive. It's a cash cow. It's lean. There's no debt. There's very little risk. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity there. And that's kind of how we, we looked at it. So did you have some sort of multiple in mind? Like, again, most people think about it in the context of like, oh, my business is going to be worth a multiple of profit or a multiple of revenue. Did you have any sense of what you thought it was worth um, as a multiple of, of EBITDA, for example, or, or revenue? Yeah, and I don't want to get into the numbers too much, but we, we definitely did have ballparks just from what our accountants told us. We also reached out to some other entrepreneurs we knew, know, knew that had sold businesses and they kind of told us. It's weird because agencies, from, from what I've learned, don't have very high EBITDAs, depending on how good or how, how, uh, how lean that agency is. But we weren't an agency. We're a marketplace. And how many marketplaces get sold or freelance marketplaces sold? So we kind of felt that we were kind of in the, in the between, in between there. But because we weren't an agency, we feel like that really helped us. Yeah. Like, and that's why I'm asking the question. I'd love to get a sense because, you know, it's really tough to know because it, it would it be multi like would they think of you as a like if you, if you were a SaaS business, I mean did you have recurring revenue? Were, were like was there sort of a, a subscription fee that they that that um, clients paid on a recurring basis whether they use the VA services or not? No, I mean we were a soft, like the whole platform we built. It was a software that built clients that had the affiliate program, like all that was custom built and they were getting that. Um, but yeah, people could sign up and have a free account. There was no monthly fee. At the same time, a lot of clients used us and billed every single month. We had clients in year four that had been billing every single week, every single month uh, for the past four years. And that's something they went through in due diligence. And there was a, a lot of reoccurring revenue, even though it wasn't built into the, the business model. Got it. Yeah. You have what we call reoccurring revenue as opposed to recurring revenue, meaning like re reoccurring, meaning it comes back, customers keep purchasing okay. every month, uh, which is the, you know, the beauty of, of a model like that. But again, back to the, the number, like, did you have, again, I, I know we can't talk about the numbers that Roth paid. I, I get that totally, the Hoth paid, excuse me. But I would be curious to know if you and Connor talked about a number like did you guys did you guys have a number in mind that you felt like you know what this is this is kind of a number yeah I mean we had lots of conversations about that and, and we did come to, to certain numbers and, and we told Mark and David that at some point and um, yeah I mean all, all of that came into the discussion I mean there were other factors as well I mean we mentioned other marketplaces were coming up we also knew that if we wanted to uh, get the business to the next level that there were going to have to be drastic operation changes, which we've never scaled a business to $25 million. So are we the right people to do it? Maybe, maybe not. Um, we didn't know a pandemic was coming, but we also knew that the economy was 
at a high point and at some point might be coming down. So that came into play at some point. And there were a lot of different factors uh, along those lines. Got it. So you and Connor have this number in your heads and you've kind of gone back and forth. What's the what's the methodology you are using to come up with that number in your own head? Like I've seen everything under the sun, but I'd be curious to know, like, how did you guys come to the number? Again, I don't, we don't need to know the number, uh, but I would like to know like how you guys arrived at it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. I mean, it's a combination of like, how does that set me up for the future? Like, well, I don't want to have to, I don't want to sell a company and then have to get a job in the future. That, that shouldn't happen. Um, but also how much are we making right now? Because we mentioned that the business had no debt. We, we pretty much took out all the money that, that's going into the company. So that's going to stop, but then we're, we're getting an upfront payment. Uh, so that was a factor as well. How many years of not working is worth giving up a potential revenue stream? And, but also does that let, let us live comfortably going forward? And like how many years is the right number? Like if someone, if you had an entrepreneur who was sort of saying like, I'm going to have to give up my income here. Um, I've been making, let's just make up a number. Uh, you know, this business has been paying me a hundred grand a year for, you know, for, for a long, 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 long time. Uh, and I'm going to get a big check, but I'm going to lose that income stream. Like how many years do you think is a reasonable um, trade-off to get that up front? Is it like three years, five years? Like what, what, what do you think is a reasonable duration here? Yeah, it, it's a good question. I mean, it, you're probably in that three day years, but there's other factors too. Like money now is worth more than, than money in the future, right? Because if I, if I get a chunk of money up front, I can invest that. I can buy real estate. I can do other things with it and make money on that money. So it's not always just a straight line of, Hey, I'm going to get four years of pay or five years of pay or 10 years of pay or whatever it is. You're getting X amount of percentage of that up front uh, that, that you can then use to, to make more money. So lots of different factors there. Got it. So Mark reaches out over Skype. He says, Hey, let's, you know, let's chat. You guys meet. What was that first meeting like? So he introduced himself, uh, Mark Hargrove, David Martin. They told us about uh, their background, their businesses, why we were even having the conversation, why they get wanted to get into the, the VA freelancer space. They told us about their experience with free up so far. Um, they told us they were interested and they told us that they had questions for us because even though they had used free up, they didn't really understand everything about it. They didn't understand, uh, did we have US freelancers as well because they had just used non-US VAs. Um, they, they wanted to understand the referral program that we talked about, why we did it, whether we felt like it was sustainable. Um, they wanted to know what we were doing for marketing, whether we own the software that we um, that they were using to get their freelancers. So they, they, they didn't have really like due diligence type questions, but they had more overall, how does the business actually work uh, to get a feel for it type questions. And how big a customer were they of free up at the time of the acquisition? Like how much of your billings were they uh, responsible for? Good question. So we, one of the cool things that I think helped us is not, no client was more than like 5% or four or four and a half percent of our total billing. So very diversified. If we lost a big client, it obviously that hurts, but it's not the end of the world. So, um, I mean, they weren't up there with the biggest clients. They, they were somewhere middle client. They would bill a, a few hundred, few thousand, um, every week, every few weeks, whatever it was. Got it. So they're not like 80% of your revenue or something like that. Uh, obviously yeah. that would change the dynamic of the negotiation. They were a relatively small proportion of your overall billings. That's right. helpful for sure. So they're asking you some fairly pointed questions. Um, what was your reaction to sharing some of that more intimate details of what's underneath the sheets? So people that follow me on social media know I'm pretty open. Like there's very few things outside of like if I sign a confidentiality that I can't share, very few things that I won't share. Um, so a lot of the stuff I had mentioned on podcasts, I've told other people, very much common knowledge. If you spend hours and hours doing research, I probably said it somewhere. So, I mean, we, we told them a, a, as much as we, we possibly could. We were an open book. I mean, at the time, we weren't 100% sure what was going to happen with that information, but we didn't think it was information that could come back and hurt us in, in any way. Okay, so you're you're fairly transparent, and and in what way did that impact your negotiation? That that transparency, that willingness to sort of share, did that have an impact at all downstream as you guys got a, got into the negotiation? 
I, I think we established from, from day one with them. We're like, hey, we're, we're going to be an open book. We're going to tell you everything. If, if we tell you something, you don't want to buy the business. Like we'd rather that happen than spend the next few years like fighting in court over something. Like we want them to be transparent up front. Like if they have certain plans, we want them to share them with us and, and vice versa. And I think that open and honest communication probably help the communication or help the negotiations. And like I said, even now, like they're, they're obviously going to make changes when you buy a business and we agree with most of their changes. There's obviously going to be stuff that we don't agree with. And they're, they've also had a lot more success than we have. So there's that kind of factor as well. So we, from whenever I talk to them, I always just try to give them open, honest thoughts, give them facts, give them information, whatever it is. And then it's up to them to either ask follow-up questions or, or do what they can with that information. It sounds like, um, it sounds like to some extent, I mean, you shared that they had had more success. Like, were they, did you see them as almost like mentor figures or older, more successful, more experienced? Like, was it that sort of almost mentor mentee kind of relationship or like, help get, help me get underneath the sense that they were more successful than you. You sound like a pretty successful guy. So I'm surprised you feel that way. Yeah. I mean, so I don't want to say they're my mentors because that's not true. Although we've learned a lot just by going through the process, just by talking with them, just by seeing the changes they made to free up. Um, I, getting from zero to 1 million, you learn a lot, right? Like my first time doing it, I'm sure your first time doing it. There are a lot of things you want to do differently. And the second time you do it, you do it a lot faster. You kind of learn from those. And same thing going from 1 million to 10 million and even more so getting from 10 to 50 million. So part of us figuring out the buyer is we weren't just going to sell it to someone who offered us a lot of money. We wanted to sell it to someone who, yes, made a good offer, but also could continue to grow free up and had the experience necessary to grow free up. I, I mentioned that they took the Hoth from $100,000 to $25 million. Well, they had, if they're going to have success with free up, they have to take free up from $10 million to $25 million. And that's not something that Connor and I had ever done before. Could we do it? Maybe. Is there a risk that we'd make bad decisions along the way and it impacts different people? Of course. And was that the main reason why we sold it? No, but was it one of many factors? I mentioned the economy. I mentioned structural changes. I mentioned finding the right people that, that we enjoyed working with that were going to take really good care of our relationships and the offer as well. All of those were, were factors that we wanted to keep in mind. And I think once we, we met with them and, and, and learned about them and we sat down and we said, okay, if we're going to sell free up, like these are the people that we're going to want to sell free up to. Got it. Okay. And you're, let's get into that a little bit more because these transparent conversations, the kind of sharing back and forth at some point, it got a little bit more formal. And, and did they ask you, okay, guys, what do you want for this thing? Did they ask you for a number? And if so, what did you say? Yeah. I mean, they asked us for a number. Uh, we had already talked about it. We told them a, a ballpark. They came back with uh, a number inside that ballpark and, and we kind of hit the ground running from there. Okay. And the, the ballpark that you gave them was sort of a range or? It was a, a small range. <laughs> okay. And, and how did you come up with that range? Again, we talked about this earlier. You know, you guys talked about the fact you were getting rid of a bunch of cash flow and you needed to sort of be paid for that. There's lots of factors that went into that. Um, but I guess a purist might say, well, man, like, how do you know you didn't leave money on the table because you kind of threw the number out to begin with? Um, did, did you guys fear that sort of sense of, well, maybe we should let them go first or like what was, how much, do, do you know what I'm asking? No, I do. And I mean, there's different negotiating tactics on both ends. I mean, we, we had talked to an accountant. We had talked to a, a few different people. Everyone came back in that same ballpark from the conversations that we had had with Mark and David. We, we kind of knew what the, the top tier of their budget was. And we also kept in mind that they hadn't even seen the financials yet. So, I mean, did we leave money on the table? Maybe. I personally don't think that, that we did. I mean, Mark and David are, are pretty smart business guys. And we got a number that we felt like was good for us and, and on a, a good range of what our accountant was saying. And again, it, it's also just a very weird business model to, um, to, to go through. And timing is also a factor of it. And now that free up isn't doing well during a pandemic. It is it's like the, the freelance marketplace out of all businesses can do pretty well. Yeah. Um, yeah. But selling businesses during a pandemic, like who, like if we had tried to sell it in March, April, May, when everything was going through craziness, probably wouldn't have even gotten close to what we got now. Now things 
can change pretty quickly. But again, lots of factors. How did you know, you mentioned that you thought the offer was at the top tier of their budget. How did you know what their budget was? We, we had talked to them before about what they've either, what they were thinking, what they bought businesses before, how that we asked them how they evaluate companies and, and they explained to us um, what they did with EBITDA. So we had a, a decent educated guess of, of what they were going to come in with. And um, we, we were somewhat close. So they sort of said, look, guys, we buy businesses for you know, X to Y multiple of EBITDA. And, and right. These are the things we been, look for. These are the boxes right. we checked, which we felt like we checked all the boxes and they kind of gave us a range like, hey, if, if X, Y, Z, it's on this side of the range, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. But you got, you, you sort of knew going in even before they presented you with an offer um, and even before you'd shared that, that, that they, there was this kind of range of EBITDA multiples that they were, they were willing to pay or they were, they were used to paying or so, so to speak. We felt like we had a very good idea just by talking to them, talking to our accountant, talking to a few other entrepreneurs that, that we respected, that we were all in that, that same ballpark. So the accountant's using a multiple of EBITDA as well, it sounds like. That was their That's sort of- pretty standard work. way to evaluate a business. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And so Mark hears your number and says, okay, um, think we can kind of get something done. Did they, what was the next step? Did they present you with some sort of L, like a letter of intent or what was their next move that, uh, after that? Uh, yeah. Letter of intent. And then the, the due diligence questions began. Got it. Okay. So what was your reaction to the LOI? Having had this sort of verbal conversation, what, what was your reaction? What did, when you saw it in, on paper? I, I think at that point we had understood that they were more serious than maybe we thought they were. And again, we had been reached out to from different people and for that business, but also an Amazon business. And we, we never really got to the LOI part, but I mean, we could tell from conversations with them that they, they, these weren't people that just popped up out of nowhere with a, a loan from the bank. Like these are people that have bought businesses that have had a lot of success. Um, mm -hmm. And we were, we were kind of expecting it at that point. And from there we, we had a, a tough decision to make of whether we wanted to enter into it. Yeah. And, and did you consider, maybe shopping it to other folks? Was that part of your consideration or, or did you think, did you not want to do that for some reason? What was, what was your thinking there? Yeah. So two reasons that we didn't want to shop it around. One, we really felt like Mark and David were our ideal person to sell it to, which is something that, that we cared about. I mean, you have to remember we had our 35 person internal team, but we also had thousands of freelancers on the platform, thousands of clients, thousands of influencers that have promoted us and partners and entrepreneurs that I know and respect. So who we sold it to was important. Um, and th so there's some other details there that I'll kind of skip over, but I guess the other, sure. the other side of it is just going, going out on the market and just saying, Hey, this business is for sale, make us an offer. Like that didn't really appeal to us. We had spent a lot of a time building our reputation, building our brand. We have thousands of people who are using FreeUp, interacting with FreeUp, knowing me, like that was coming back to our team at some point. So if we were going to sell it, we were trying to keep it on the secret C side. And it, it, this seemed like the best way to do it. Yeah. I heard, I heard one entrepreneur uh, whose name is escaping me at this moment. I feel embarrassed not to be able to place his name, but he, um, he described it as landing the plane, you know, like finding a home for, for the business that was going to be a, nestled into a, a, a perfect landing strip. But I thought that was a great analogy for what you're describing, which is wanting to find a home for your business that it would kind of thrive after your time. So in the letter of intent, again, I, I appreciate the fact that we can't talk about the number, um, but I would be curious to know sort of what it covered. So did, so you, there was obviously an offer. Was that a multiple of EBITDA or was it actual like a, a dollar figure? Good question. I'm trying to, I, I believe it was a dollar figure in the, in the letter of intent from the best of my Got memory. And, and one of the other questions that comes to mind is, is how you guys dealt with working capital. Because as you described, you had this beautiful business model where you charge customers up front and then paid the freelancers after that. So you had a positive cash flow model, but that means you've got a lot of capital, like working capital in, in the business, presumably. How did you guys, like, how did they propose to deal with working capital? 
Yeah, really everything we did, we, we just made as fair as possible. Any cash before the sale went to us. They paid us afterwards um, once, they, once they paid off the freelancers and looked for any like bad debt or anything like that. And anything from the day after was there. So everything was really down to the, to the second of, of when something happened and kept accordingly. And even, even stuff like, and, and this seems stupid, it's not really a big part, it wouldn't have affected things here or there, but like technically this laptop was property of FreeUp. Like they were like, hey, like keep your laptops, keep your other stuff. Like everything was very civil, everything was very fair, um, uh, kind of across the board. And whenever something came up and popped up, we talked it out, figured out a fair resolution and, and added to the agreement. Got it. And did they give you a, like a, um, a diligence checklist or like a, a, like here are the things that we're going to have to kind of check out as part of that letter of intent? It was more like endless emails of questions, but it was more on, it was on both sides. Like every time they would send us over 20 questions, we would send them over 20 questions. Like we, again, we had some good phone calls with them. They seem like good entrepreneurs, but again, we wanted to learn more. We wanted to know their, their good purchases, their bad purchases, what they were trying to do with FreeUp or their, what they were planning on doing with the, the internal team, who's going to be running the operations of it, um, different stuff like that. So we, we were sending due diligence questions back and forth from both sides for, for a few weeks in there. This is after the letter of intent was signed. After. And I think the good thing about, and I don't, I think, so they told us that we were the fastest people to get back to them in terms of due diligence, but it was more about our organization side. Like if they're like, hey, can you give us a, a breakdown of US versus non-US people on the platform? Well, we have that right here. Like click this button, add it to due diligence. So all of our books were meticulous. All of our, um, like our team organization charts, everything they asked for, we were, were a click away. So it didn't really take us that long to actually respond to those. Um, at the same time, there were just a lot of questions. And I, I guess a lot of people may be saying, wow, I'm surprised that a company was willing to buy another business that didn't have any full-time employees. Like all of your employees were uh, contractors, if I understand correctly. No one full-time in the U.S. other than you and Connor, if that's... Yeah, I mean, they were full-time non-U.S. essentially. Okay. And I, I think if it's not common now, it's going to become common soon. I mean, there's so much that you can do with virtual assistants hiring from the Philippines. Like I was just talking to someone who was actually a client of FreeUp and he was asking about my experience and he was worried that the, the buyer um, wouldn't buy once he realized that there was no US employees. And I have no idea if this buyer will or won't do that, but I kind of told him um, my experience off of it and, and how it didn't really uh, affect the sale. So, I mean, we were transparent about it. They knew what they were getting into. And if you want to add another crazy factor is we didn't let them meet the team um, before they bought free up. That was a, a big thing that we weren't, weren't budging on. Um, we, we showed them meetings. We showed them like back stuff on each person. We explained every single person, their role, their rate, all of that. And they really trusted us that we were giving them A players and they've been super happy with the, the people sense. Why were you so sensitive not to share the employees' names and contact information? Um, so they got the names, but they weren't going to reach out to them, but they, we didn't like introduce them or anything like that. Um, we're very similar to the same reason we didn't want to just go out on the market and say, Hey, our business is for sale. The second it gets back to the internal team, it's very tough to, um, backtrack on that. And we, we know deals can fall through. I mean, we were expecting that we were planning for the deal to fall through the entire five to six months up until the day we signed it And hmm. two factors, one, keeping our team motivated and, and we knew that any distractions would motivate them, but also making sure that if they did back out, that we were still had an operating business, that we were still hitting our goals. We were still finishing projects. And that was tough to do. I mean, Connor and I, we kind of kept each other accountable. There were good days. Where we were highly motivated, bad days. We were like, okay, like this lawyer thing is dragging out too much. Like, can we just get like, finish this? Um, but, but the last month that we sold free up ended up being the, the best month that we had had in the four years that, that we ran free up. So by keeping our team focused, by keeping Connor and I accountable and focused, we're able to, to not run into a situation where as this dragged on, like, who knows? You have two bad months in a row. Maybe that spooks the buyers. Like, anything can happen at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Were you also worried that if you made introductions that they could steal some of those employees and basically just take your employees as opposed to buying the business? I almost never worry about people stealing our employees. I mean, we're all about virtual assistants and getting them to buy in and treating them well and having good culture and creating raise and pro programs that they're happy with. And even with outsource school, I mean, 
people that join outsource school, they get an onboarding call with my VA Grace. Every single person could go to Grace and say, hey, you work for Nate, he's good at vetting people, come work for my company, but Grace doesn't wanna go anywhere because she loves outsource school and she wants to be a, a part of what we built. So that's never been something I've been concerned about. Got it. Did your agreements with your virtual assistants, these 30 full-time but virtual non, you know, non, not full-time employees in, in the US or whatever, did they have, um, those agreements have what lawyers usually call, I think they call it a survivability clause or assignability clause, meaning you could assign the, the commitments they make to you to the, to the buyer effectively. Did they have that clause in them? Uh, no. <laughs> so my overall opinion and not to give legal advice is like hiring people from the Philippines and making them sign a legal document. Like, what are you going to do with that legal document? If they break it, are you going to chase them across the Philippines and, and hunt them down? Like probably not. So we had terms of service on our marketplace. We had expectations and stuff that we agreed on, but getting into the nitty gritty like that, it's just very unenforceable. Got it. Got it. Okay. But that's just my own personal opinion. Yeah. Neither of us are lawyers. So we'll, we'll save that for the the $800 an hour guys. <laughs> um, how long did it take between from signing the letter of intent till the check clears your bank account and the share purchase agreement, the definitive share purchase agreement is signed? Uh, they wired it while we were there. No, no. I mean, how long did that take from signing the letter of intent to the, oh. to the, uh, the actual share purchase agreement? Uh, five to six months. And, did the letter of intent stipulate a length of time for diligence? Usually it's 60 uh, days. Did they, did they, did you, could you recall if it had 60 yeah, days? Yeah. So there was a time for diligence, which we, we went through. Um, and then the, the lawyers got involved for a closing date and <laughs> the lawyers wasn't their fault. It wasn't our fault. It was just kind of two lawyers doing their thing, going over every fine detail. And every day the lawyer would come to us with a different thing. We'd hop on the phone. We'd talk it out. They were reasonable. We were reasonable. We'd figure it out. We'd tell the lawyers what we wanted. And then another thing would pop up and not lawyers also aren't just working instantly on you. They have other clients too. So sure. maybe for a week they couldn't get to it or whatever it was. So the lawyer part was not fun. It was stressful. It dragged out. But I mean, I love our lawyer. They like their lawyer. Like they're just doing their job trying to protect their clients. Yeah. 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 So you sort of said it was going to be two months. It ended up being closer to six. So it was, it was definitely lengthened. You know, a lot of people having never gone through diligence now uh, are wondering like, what on earth could it make it so difficult or what should I prepare in advance? So it doesn't go so long and become so protracted. Like what are some of the things that surprised you that came up during diligence? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, and this is something I, I think we've learned from them is just being very on top of your, your data. So they wanted lots of data points that, that we had just never collected. We had never looked at um, even like breakdowns between billing of different countries, um, following clients like over time and, and how, how often they, they come back versus percentages. We had some of it, maybe a very basic version of it, uh, but, but they took it to new levels. So I think that the, they kept asking for these different reports, different ratios, different percentages that we had. We had all the numbers, we were organized, but we had to, to kind of put it together. But then they also wanted explanations on why we did stuff. So they joined our newsletters. They, they got a newsletter with a promotion. They wanted to know why we ran that promotion, what the thought was behind it, how we, um, like what, like why we were offering discounts, how the promotion went. So there was a lot of stuff that as we were going along, they, they were following us and, and asking questions about the decisions that we were making. And we weren't making any different decisions than we would be making if we had not been selling the business, but they just wanted to understand what exactly was going on. And what was behind your choice to send them almost an equal number of questions back like for every five questions they asked you you asked five in return like what was your thinking there yeah i forget who told us to do that we got some advice to to do that and we we probably would have done it anyway i mean we we care a lot about culture we care a lot about people we care a lot about relationships and we we want to work with people who want the same thing as we can. We want to create win-wins for everyone. We want them to buy free up and grow it and make a lot of money on it. We want us to get a good deal. We want our team to be taken care of. And we also only want to work with people that can like talk stuff out. Like if we have a dispute, I don't want to get a, a lawsuit letter in the mail. I want to hop mm. on the phone and 
figure it out like civilized adults. And, and so we wanted to make sure that they, were, they would answer our questions, that we knew what was going on, and, and really preventing any red flags. And it's almost no different than hiring virtual assistants. When I hire VAs, we set the expectations, we lay it out there, we make sure we have all the information up front so there's no surprises down the line. And, and we kind of treated this in, in the same way. Yeah, it's it's interesting and, and also I think really strategic because the more they have to ask, the more they want diligence to come to an end too. Because man, if we send these six questions, Nathan's just going to ask us ten more. So <laughs> I don't want to keep answering all these questions. So it's an interesting uh, interesting strategy. What was the what was the structure of the deal? So uh, you know, a lot of these businesses are are bought and sold usually on some, some sort of like earnout or what's called a vendor take back where you sent sort of loan a little bit of money to the buyer so that you get paid over time. Like how did you guys structure some of that stuff? Honestly, not sure if I'm allowed to discuss it, but it was a combination uh, of mostly cash up front with some element of earnout. Got it. Okay. That's helpful for sure. And, and so you're also doing diligence because you want to know like, is this earnout going to be real? Right, exactly. There's a yeah. there's a certain element of afterwards, and we also don't want people to, to like on our team to to get screwed over in any way. Like they could hire people, they could buy free up, fire everyone, replace them with their mm -hmm. own team, and even if Connor and I had a bunch of money in our bank account, we wouldn't be feeling too good about ourselves. We're not going to be celebrating that. So we want to know that we're selling this to to good people who are going to treat people well and. And that's across the board, not just the team, but the freelancers, the clients and, and all of that. And obviously they're not going to be us. Like they're going to do things their own way and be differently. But I mean, we want to sell it. We want to really in general, whether it's my business partner, whether it's a client, whether it's a freelancer, we only want to work with good people who honor their word, who have the same values and beliefs that we do. Got it. How did you tell the team? Once the that was had, tough. Uh, I mean, yeah. once we sold it, we hopped on a Zoom call and we, we told them and, and they, there was emotions, there was crying. They were very appreciative of the, the money we set aside for them. And I think even more so with the pandemic. Um, but I mean, they were emotional. They were sad. We were sad too. I mean, I'm the godfather of Chicky Ann's kid. We had been working together for, for eight years. Like that, that's tough. Uh, we, now we still stay in touch with them. We chat with them. We're connected on social media. We want to make sure they're doing well. They're, they're all doing great. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely a, a tough conversation. At the same time, I, I think they understood why we made the decision. And, and I think that was important to us. Got it. So you mentioned that you, you put aside, uh, I think you said $500,000 for uh, the team. Very generous. Um, what, what was the, how did that come about? That, that was something my business partner and Connor and I uh, talked about. I mean, that wasn't something we necessarily like planned years in advance. I mean, we said, Hey, if we're going to sell this thing, like we couldn't do it without our team. They were building us 2000 hours a week. We couldn't work 2000 hours a week if we wanted to. They, their ideas, their feedback, their hard work was a big part of growing free up. And we felt like they, they deserved to be rewarded. But hadn't you sort of rewarded them along the way? I mean, you weren't paying them below market rates or perhaps you were like, why did you feel a sense of, I'm curious because you were hiring people in a developing country that may not have had jobs otherwise, I'm assuming. Like, why did you feel the sense of indebtedness? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, if you sell a company, your, your employees, your freelancers, whatever, your virtual assistant should get a, a piece of it. And all what piece they get is totally subjective. And I'm sure there's a, a lot of factors there. But I mean, we felt like Connor and I were, were very well off going forward. We're very fortunate. We're fortunate we grew up in the US with opportunities that they probably didn't have. And we felt like this was a, an opportunity for them and some reward for, for a lot of hard work. And we felt like it was the right thing to do. And um, yeah, I'm not sure it was much more than that. Was did the Hoth require you to have some sort of retention plan or bonus plan in place to transfer those employees over? Uh, no, in, in fact, they were very just skeptical at first, just because I guess they like they'd never heard of it, they couldn't believe like why we were doing it, and we explained it to them. So this was a hundred percent from our side, um, like not a, not really on their side. They were down with it once we explained it to them and, and told them why, and I think it kind of reassured them that they were getting a players because again, remember they never even met the team. Um, but this came up later in the negotiation after everything was kind of set about. Was there any sense that I mean? How did, first of all, how did you divvy up the money across the 30 employees? 
<laughs> we spent a few hours going through people and and dividing it out. I'm not sure there's a, a perfect science for it. We tried to factor in uh, a combination of how long they've been with us, with what their role is. Are they a team leader? Are they not a team leader with their, their overall per performance? And we tried to get it as bright as we possibly could. Okay, got it. So there's a bunch of factors that went in and some subjectivity, some objectivity, but a bunch of things and you arrived at, at a number. But I'm assuming that for some of them, this was life-changing money. Yeah, I mean, people, they've been showing us their, their houses and renovations and stuff they've been able to do. I think that, the, again, we didn't know a pandemic was coming, but if you think the life is crazy in the U.S. with the pandemic, imagine what mm. it's like in the Philippines. So I think I having that, that sense of security there. And I mean, whenever, and I'd be the same way. If someone bought my company, the first thing I'm going to be thinking is, am I going to lose my job? How long until I lose my job sure. and, and all of that? So I think the, the, the money helped ease that while we also continue to reassure them that they weren't going to lose their job um, and all of that. Yeah, it makes sense. Was there any uh, hesitation? I've heard of some acquirers saying, oh, no, no, don't pay them a bunch of money because then they're going to leave because <laughs> they're going to feel like, man, I got all this money and you know, I'm, I'm just doing the math. It's around on average, like 10 or 15 grand per person, which may not sound like life-changing money to you uh, or someone listening to this, but again, to someone in a developing country, that could be a huge amount of money. It could be a year's worth of money in some cases. Was there any sort of like um, hesitation on behalf of the buyer saying, hey man, don't like, don't give them that much money because I want to keep them. <laughs> Did you hear about that at all? Or any sort yeah, of Yeah, that, that was kind of their initial reservation, right? Like, and if I was in their shoes, that would be my first reaction too. But I sure. mean, we hopped on the phone with them and I mean, we explained to them that like, yeah, these people are, they're going to get money, but they also love free up. They're dedicated to free up. They want to be a part of free up. They also have big families. They want, they need to continue earning a living. This isn't mm -hmm. retirement money. Um, and, and they, they want to be a part of it. And I mean, they, I think they kind of took our word on that, although we had been open and honest with every other thing that we had done. So they had no reason to, to kind of doubt us there. And I mean, rightfully so, like it's been almost a year since then and no one's just grabbed that money and run. Hmm. Describe for me where you were when the wire came in to confirm um, that the transaction had been consummated. Yeah, I mean, we were in their office um, in the Hoth headquarters in St. Pete, Tampa. And uh, yeah, they, we signed the document and immediately they, they sent us the money. And so what, like, are you checking your iPhone? Like, do you have your banking app on your phone and you're like refreshing, refreshing, refreshing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, essentially, as soon as it's there, I mean, again, we, at that point, like we're trusting them. It, do, it doesn't really make much sense for them to sign this agreement and then not send us the money at that point. So we weren't, we weren't necessarily like scared it wasn't going to happen, but it was definitely like, Hey, this is real. Sure. But I, I would actually genuinely be curious to know, like you're, so you're in their offices. It's like kind of, they've got home field advantage so to speak. They say, okay, it's done. Wire sent. Are you calling your bank to confirm it's there? Oh yeah. Or? I checked it. I have a banking app on my phone. <laughs> okay. So you, you refresh and you're like, yeah, okay, good. We're, we're good. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. What'd you do next? So it, so the next few days, like weren't really celebrating. Like we told the team and we got to remember, we got 35 people that all work mm -hmm. different time zones. So we had multiple meetings where we informed everyone. There was a lot of crying, a lot of emotion, a lot of explaining, a lot of repeating ourselves. So it wasn't until mm -hmm. a few days later that we actually got to um, enjoy it and celebrate. What'd you do? Uh, Connor was here. So Connor lives in Denver. Um, he came to Orlando. We went to the Hoth headquarters. We told the team while we were in the Hoth headquarters and we came back to, to my place and, uh, we really just celebrated here. I think we went out, we got some beers. We kind of reminisced over the past four years and, um, talked a little bit about the future, although nothing too crazy, just more long-term big picture ideas. Um, and yeah, just kind of enjoyed the moment. Hmm. Good for you. Did you, did you buy yourself a trophy or any sort of reward to mark the occasion? No, I'm a pretty frugal guy. I actually, I shouldn't even say that because I just bought a, a second house in Colorado, but I was kind of planning on doing that anyway. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I, to me, this is the, hopefully the beginning. I'm 31. I sold the business. I had some success mm -hmm. on Amazon, although I never sold it. Hopefully outdoor school has, has some success. And I mean, I want, I want to continue to be in the entrepreneurial world. I've, I've never been, if you can tell by the way I'm dressed, I'm a shorts and t-shirts kind of guy. I, I'm never going to be one to just drop a lot of money on, on, on just stuff. Um, usually for me, it's about travel and, and I had lots of travel lined up this year that all kind of got washed out the window. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's tough timing. Well, there are worse problems, I guess, to have. But uh, I'm happy for you, and I hope it uh, uh, I hope it works out for travel at some point down the road when the uh, when the world starts opening up again. Where can people uh, find you, Nathan, if, if they want to reach out? Is LinkedIn the best, or you want to point them somewhere? What's what's the best way to reach out? Yeah, Nathan Hershaw on Facebook, on LinkedIn, Instagram, or go to outsourceschool.com. You can check what I'm up to now. We're, we're teaching people. We're giving people all of our systems, all of our processes so that you can scale businesses with virtual assistants. Awesome. Nathan, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.